we have uh, had some introductory sermons, and then we've gone through some pictures, some windows, parables into the kingdom of God. We've gone through the Easter season together. What a privilege that has been. And now for the next uh, two or three months, three months probably, uh, we will be looking, as the bumper has told us, at the book of Ephesians together. Our goal has been to get a clearer and deeper picture of Jesus Christ and our responsibilities and vocations before Him and with Him as disciples and followers. And today we start a series into what is perhaps one of the uh, most concentrated and compelling books written about Jesus after the life of Jesus. It is the climax, one commentator puts it, of all Pauline theology. Scottish theologian H.R. McIntosh, a good Scottish name, has a, has a great sentence about what the writers in the New Testament are about after the Gospels. He writes, when the writers of the New Testament looked into the stretching future, that includes our time, of course, the felt greatness of Jesus' person, far from crushing them in dumb awe, thrilled their imagination, dilated their reason, and lifted up their kindled minds to new, undreamt-of thoughts concerning his relation to God and humanity. That's what I pray our time together in Ephesians can be, something that is thrilling to our imaginations, what, that which can dilate, open up our minds, and can kindle, it says our minds here, but let's say kindle, set on fire our hearts. The book of Ephesians does all of that. One commentator calls it the crown and climax of Pauline theology. Another says it is the most consummate and comprehensive statement of the meaning of the Christian faith in all of the New Testament. And it is certainly the final statement of Pauline theology. So Ephesians combines a manual of Christian doctrine and a book about how to live the Christian life. It combines both theology and practice, faith and life. It is an excursus, uh, an excursus, an exercise both on what God has done and what we must do. Uh, chapters 4, 5, and 6, which I pray we will get to, are, are chock full of practical information, how we can live together as the church how we can get together with, uh, get along with one another, how we can live in marriages and family and spiritual warfare and work. In short, it deals with the most practical kinds of matters. But it all begins at the uh, beginning of chapter 4 with the word, therefore. So obviously, these mandates, these helps of the Christian life, all are a consequence of something else. Practice follows theology. Life follows ideas. Ideas do have their consequences. So the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians give us a robust, concise, compelling, clear praises of Christian doctrine. Now that's, that, I teach doctrine. <laughs> I'm really on my home turf here. I love that, but I realize to the modern mind it's not quite as compelling in itself as a word. Doctrine sounds dull and stodgy and remote and sleep putting on. Our modern mentality tells us it really doesn't matter what you believe so long as you are honest and loving and sincere. 
Uh, Thomas Jefferson, two centuries ago and more, put it into words. He said that it's not your creed, it's your deeds. But of course, Jefferson overlooked the fact that that sentence itself is a creed. It's a kind of doctrine. Ideas do impel our living. Our living is a consequence of what we believe. And Paul is saying at the outset of the book of Ephesians, you simply cannot live the decent, moral, successful, put-together life I know you want to, except on the basis of faith and belief and confidence and doctrine. C.S. Lewis's friend Dorothy Sayers, one of the first female graduates of uh, Oxford University, uh, wrote about this in her own day. She said, people think that churches are declining in England because pastors are preaching doctrine. The problem is they aren't preaching doctrine enough. People think doctrine is dull, but she writes, the terrifying assertion that the same God who made the world lived in the world and passed through the grave and the gate of death is the most dramatic story ever told. Dogma is drama. That's Dorothy Sayers. So deeds do depend on creeds. Thomas Jefferson, much as I respect uh, some of what, much of what he has done, is wrong on that point. Ideas have consequences. Life is built on truth. There is no life without truth. So Ephesians starts us on a journey, assuring us that we are given a framework so that we will not, as Christians and followers, be blown about by every wind of doctrine. Uh, chapters 1 and 2 start us off. In chapters 1, we are taken to the heights. We have God's perspective on the world, and we're, it's almost in the nosebleed section. Chapter 2 is our perspective on that. It's almost psychological. Paul says, or we sum up something like, this is what I know, basically. I was dead, but now I'm alive. But we start out with God's great perspective. Listen to the words of the opening. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul opens his letter with his name. Paul. It's his new name. Uh, he was given at birth the name of a majestic and mighty, if tragic, Israeli king, Saul. And when he is converted to Christ, Paul is the poster child of conversion. He is given a new name, Paul, which means small. So from one who could boast of the greatest self-righteousness that any Jew could, he adopts a new name that I cling not to my righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. The mighty Saul has become the small Paul, his new name. Um, I said Paul is the, is the poster child of conversion. That means you are walking one way and you turn around, you repent of of where you have been, and you turn in faith towards Christ. The most uh, dramatic evocation of that outside of Scripture itself I've seen is, uh, of all things, a Broadway play. It was put on Broadway in 1948, the year I was born, how our culture has changed. You can't, wouldn't think of a, 
of Broadway having an explicitly Christian play now, but it did then. It had some people that went on to be stars in it. Uh, Jack Palance uh, was in the production. Uh, and it, uh, it was written by a man with one of the most beautiful names I've ever heard. Its author is uh, Ladislas Fodor. <laughs> How would you like to go into a restaurant and say, well, who shall I keep the reservation for? Well, just Ladislas Fedora. But uh, in it, 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 it's a courtroom drama in which the truth of the resurrection is put on trial and the characters of the uh, biblical drama are called on to give testimony for and against uh, the truth of the resurrection. And the prosecution puts on their case first that Jesus couldn't possibly have been risen from the dead. And the character that is called is Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of Christians, the defender of the law. And he's a, a stern, heavy character. It's beautiful writing. If I had thought enough of advance, we would have had the ready for primetime players do uh, the before and after. But here's just a section of the testimony that Saul of Tarsus gives in court against the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, I am a Jew, a witness for God. And I can prove from the scriptures that Jesus the Nazarene was not the Messiah. Christians say Jesus came to help us, but we are not supposed to be helped. We cannot take the easy road. We cannot even help ourselves by calling upon the name of the holy. That word must never be spoken. We guard it in eternal silence. We guard it with sealed lips. We guard it by law, relentless, heavy, final. A comma cannot be changed. I hope you heard in my voice that character that Fodor wrote, ponderous, heavy, caught in chains, bound by the law. And at the end of his testimony, it's towards the end of Act One, it's a three-act play, he uh, says, I have to go. I'm due for an appointment in Damascus. And he leaves the stage. And the play goes on, there's an intermission, there's a whole second act, and there's an intermission, you kind of forget about him. And then in the third act, it's time for the defense to put on their case. And Saul of Tarsus is called back and introduced as Paul. The prosecution rises to their feet and they object. He said, you can't have him testify. He's the same witness that testified for us, for the prosecution. And Paul says, no, I'm a new man. I'm a changed man, the poster child of conversion. And the judge allows him to speak. And Paul, from Damascus, says this, who are you? And he says, I am an ambassador for Christ. I was given my appointment at Damascus. I came here to tell you, Jesus lives. He struck me blind that I should see only him. He sent me back into darkness, the darkness of the womb, that I should be delivered again. He is the Son. And he struck Saul to death and Paul was born. What wonderful writing. 
It uh, thrills my imagination, dilates my reason, and kindles my heart to have such an evocation of this poster child of conversion who becomes a new man, a new being, a new understanding because of what happens to him on the Damascus Road, and Ephesians is the height of his explanation of what happened in that conversion time. Grace and peace to you, he writes, from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, from the earliest moments, from the earliest times. Jewish monotheism is exploded into, I admit it, this case, what I would call Binitarianism on the road, but it is here at the same time Trinitarianism. We worship as Christians one God. We are monotheists, but it is a Trinitarian monotheism. When our Jewish and Muslim monotheist brothers and sisters uh, say to us, you Christians worship three gods, there are no good answers to bad questions. We, we have to reframe that and say, no, we don't worship three gods. The question is whether or not you are a Unitarian or a Trinitarian monotheist. We are all monotheists. We believe in one God, but our God is Trinitarian. And before that's a problem, it is a solution. It is a mystery, but it opens up great things. Without the Christian understanding of God, the world careens between two basic understandings of what the world is about. It's, everything is monistic. Everything belongs together. It all comes from the same ooze and returns to it. And so the hymn of monism or Buddhism is um, um, that's the song. It's not an innocent thing that we sing with different notes and have harmony. The God is, the world is all, all either one or the world is, is diverse and varied. We all live in our own kingdoms, and I pray that my tribe's God and your tribe, or it's stronger than your tribe's God, or the, the God over there in that tree or that rock or that stone or that mountain. The problem isn't how we can all be different. We know that. It's how can we all live together. The great Trinitarian faith of the Bible explains how the world is fundamentally diverse and together because God is. From all eternity, God is love and lover and the spirit of love. He does not create out of need, but out of fullness. He doesn't create as the Muslim God does so that he can have subjects to control because he is already loved from eternity itself. And creation is the overflow, the free, gracious sharing of who God is in himself. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you have a beautiful outline. I think it's beautiful in front of you. At least if you filled it in, it would be beautiful. I handed it in earlier this week. And those notes begin in verse 3, and uh, what I handed in, I had an introduction at the beginning of it, and as I developed the sermon, I didn't get out of the introduction. So we won't look at this at all. Verse 3, you'll probably hear this again next week. Verse 3, there's, in this translation, there, there are two sentences. I'll probably uh, give you a new translation next week. But beginning in verse 3 is the longest sentence in the New Testament. It uh, tumbles on and on. Tomorrow after staff meeting, I'll be with Stephanie leaving for Atlanta, Georgia to see my sister who's not doing well. The last time she was out here in California, uh, my brother was with her and they're 
spouses and all six of us went to Yosemite Valley and we saw the beautiful waterfalls. I wonder if they're running at the same stream right now. That long but huge volumes of water that would come down and they would hit the rocks and then that, that would explode into a, 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 an explosion of mist and it's just a beautiful vision. That's what verses 3 to 6 are. One commentator says they are a, a a, a, a tumble of words with a storm of ideas behind them. And we will just get uh, started with them this morning. Uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Remember that the theme of the will of God returns at the last part of this and throughout the book of Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Uh, the word starts out with the word eugoloto. It's the same word we use for eulogy. Some translations say, praise be to God, blessed be God. But it's a eulogy to God, so we start out with a good word to God. Imagine that. Last Thursday, down immediately below where you were sitting, sitting we had a, a memorial service for Velma Lee Layton. She went on to be with the Lord at almost 90 years of age, but for many years she was a kindergarten teacher, both professionally in school and at this church. She uh, loved to life many of our kindergartners in Sunday school. She loved children and she served them faithfully at this church, and we were filled with eulogies to her life, and I found out that she was about 1960, so 62 years ago, and several years in there, but about the, night, the, about the turn, the end of the 50s, the beginning of the 60s, um, Velma, member of this church and kindergarten teacher here, was a TV kindergarten teacher on Romper Room. That was a, I found out, I watched it when I was a child, it was on the air for about 30 years, a national program, but it also had local franchises, and she was the teacher for the local franchise up in Kern County for about three or four years. I remember how vividly the teacher in Romper Room would bring up her magic mirror, which is kind of a hand mirror with a mirror taken out of it, and look through it, and said, I see all you children out in TV land, and she would name our names. I would be so thrilled whenever she would say, John. I want to propose to you that the book of Ephesians is, is Paul's magic mirror that he holds up to us to look into the very life and will and purposes of God. What a great gift we have in that. And it starts out with praise, with blessing to him. Yesterday, I was in the Bay Area teaching all day. Saturday flew up Friday and uh, got back late last night. But one of my adult students, one of the privileges of teaching at the level I do is we sometimes have young men right out of college, but uh, sometimes we have people towards the end of life, and mid-career is probably the average. And this student is probably about 60. He's young, vibrant, vital, energetic, happy. He's uh, like an older version of our 30 years older, but Jonah Macklin and Dan Matson, just like them, just full of energy. He'd been teaching high school students. Uh, not professionally, but as a Sunday school teacher for about 25 years. 
and it showed in his love of Christ and his joy and his enthusiasm. But he shared with me yesterday that when he was 30 years old, he was quite financially successful. He started his own business. He was international, and he uh, uh, went with a pretty fast crowd and a fast set, and he was in San Francisco planning the next section of his life, and he thought it was going to probably include starting something over in Singapore. As I said, it was an already international, and he stopped in all of his plans, 30, year, 30 years old, and he said, but I'm not happy. I'm not happy. And so this really the only, this is in my own personal experience, the only 30-year-old that I know that has done this. It usually happens at about 60 or even, even later. But he, he took stock of his life. And he said, when was I last happy? And to his own surprise, he thought back when 15 years before or so in high school when he was in church and he was praising God. He said, my life wasn't perfect. I had all the problems teenagers had. It was mostly girls, he said. But when I was praising God, I felt myself, I felt together, I was happy. And he went from that recognition and changed the entire future of his life. I told you he taught high school students and Sunday school for 25 years. And he went back to church. And the student I know and the life I saw is a life which is radiantly happy because it has started, it understands our purpose and vocation here on earth is to praise God, is to bless Him, and to enjoy Him forever. That's the purpose for which we were made. John Piper, a wonderful pastor in the Minneapolis area, has almost made a career out of the insight that he uh, got from one of uh, the writers he read during his doctoral work. He said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. So Paul opens this uh, great letter to the book of Ephesians with praise to God, with blessings to Him. He is preoccupied with the giver, not the gifts. But having said that, he does go on to list the gifts. There's a, a play of words here in blessing upon blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Listen to that. And this is the heart, this is, this is the center of what I want to share with you this morning. Christians should not live in spiritual poverty. If Paul is to be trusted, if Paul is true, he is announcing that God has not withheld anything in Christ. There is no joy, there is no spiritual blessing, there is nothing possible that has not actually been freely given and bestowed. Nothing has been held back, and nothing has been partially given. That's the gift to carry away that the giver is giving this Sunday from Paul's message at the opening of Ephesians. In the Chronicles of Stinginess, there are few stories more dramatic than that of Hetty Green. Hetty Green died in 1918, I'm sorry, 1916, 
and left behind a fortune of $100 million. But although rich, she still ate her oatmeal cold because of the money it would cost to heat it. Sadly, it, this is nothing to smile about, but her own son had his leg amputated because she delayed too long trying to find a free clinic that would provide the surgery for free after she was, was dead. Now, I can kind of identify with this. I don't do it, but it seems to me kind of a good idea. <laughs> after she was dead, she found the little, little bars of soap when they, they got down real small that had been kind of compressed together into one big bar of soap so she didn't have to buy a new one. That's Hetty Green. And for someone to have almost untold financial resources, now one can use them well and use them generously, we're not saying that, but to live as though one were impoverished is simply foolish. Paul is writing the opening of this book of Ephesians so that those who follow Christ will not live as spiritual paupers when we indeed have been given, not some, not a few, but every spiritual blessing. It is of this great truth that Paul seeks to remind his readers. He does it repeatedly through the book. In the third chapter, and, um, excuse me, later in the first chapter, he writes this prayer, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for all those who believe. Let me just put my toe into the next part of verses 4 to 6. This is a promissory note on next week. But he introduces two great themes. There's a, there's a third we won't even, well, I'll name it, God's choosing. But it's God's will and God's love. Listen to verse 1. He has it right immediately. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul says he is who he is. We who are who we are by the will of God. And most of us modern day Christians get that wrong. We think the will of God is something that we, we need to discover for our individual lives. What is God's will for me? But the great announcement in Ephesians is that we live our lives out of God's, God's great overarching will that we don't need to discover. The individual of, there is not a will particularly for you to discover that isn't given in the Word of God. That's what we need to see. We are to live our lives with all the individual decisions that we are to make in light of God's overarching arching will which he has declared in Scripture and which he will bring to pass. The world is held by God's good, sure, sovereign purposes. We can trust that and we can live in light of God's great will. He is working out everything in conformity with his purpose and with his will. And then in verse 4 we see, for he chose us in him. The great gift of the Christian life is not primarily our choice. Our choice is only 
penultimate, secondary. And God's choice of us is ultimate. It is primary. We do not start the Christian life by saying, I received Christ and I admitted my sins because that's bragging on us. We are more open or intelligent or willing than others. No, the great start of the Christian life is God's choice of us. Buddhism says, you want to make yourself a Buddhist? Then do this. Islam says, you want to make yourself a Muslim? Then here is what you do. Christianity is different. You can't make yourself a Christian. You did not make yourself a Christian. Becoming a Christian isn't something you have done. It's something God has done. You are what you are, as Paul is what he is, by the grace of God alone. And that is an astonishing, amazing fact. It is almost a joke. Christianity means that we should never lose our sense of humor. God chose someone actually like me. Can you believe it? It's the most startling, the most amazing, the greatest promise that has ever been made. C.S. Lewis says there are two kinds of love. There is need love and there's gift love. Most of us are pretty experienced with need love. Need love is conditional. I love you. If you're pretty enough or if you work hard enough or if you're satisfying enough, but the problem with that kind of love is that we can lose it. It can go away. But gift love makes his beloved beautiful. It never leaves us. A singer from my era, from the past, Dan Fogelberg, uh, wrote one. I, I, I do like sentimental love songs. And he wrote one about as sentimental as you can get. It goes something like, uh, longer than there have been fish in the ocean, higher than birds ever flew, uh, longer than there have been stars in the sky, that's how long I love you. Only Christians know that there is a love like that because God has made it and chosen it from before the foundation of the world. Not long ago, another of my adult students, we'll call him Bob, he lives in Orange County. He said that his daughter called him from Minnesota and said his grandson, her 17-year-old son who was going through a tough patch in his teenage years had run away from home. And he had called her from New Orleans, the French Quarter. And uh, her father, my friend Bob, said, thanks, that's all I need to know. And two hours later, he was on a plane from Orange County to New Orleans. He said, I knew Orleans, New Orleans. I've been there a couple of times. He said, I checked into the Marriott and I went straight to the French Quarter and I saw some uh, kids break dancing. I, I was, I'd been there not long before and I think I saw the same group. They're pretty good. <laughs> they passed, they're, they're very good. I remember they passed their hat out and they said, um, we're collecting money to go to college. 
And if you give us enough, we won't need to go to college. <laughs> and Bob said he saw his grandson in that crowd looking at those breakdancers. So he sidled up behind him. He took $5 out of his pocket. He reached over his grandson's shoulder and he said, here, put this in the hat. And without looking, his grandson took, took the bill and he went forward and dropped the money in. He turned around and he saw his grandfather. He says, Grandfather, what are you doing here? And Bob said, I've come for you. And the grandson said, Why? And he said, Because I love you. And because I will always be there for you. And I will never let you go. You and I need a king that loves us like that. With a gift love. The kind of love that will never fail you and that will never let you go. Paul's message in the book of Ephesians that we're going to have the joy of walking through together tells us that if you are a Christian, you are to rest completely in God's grace. Go to him, because in his grace, he has already come to you. And there really is a love that is higher than and lasts longer than the stars. Living and holy God, we are thankful that you are willing to let us into your heart and that through Paul and in your words, you would let us into the counsels of your mind. As short-sighted and as myopic as we are, as self-centered as we are, as dim-witted and foolish as we can be, you have promised us every spiritual blessing, not just some, not just part, but all. And you have taken us to the spiritual heights to allow us to see vistas and panoramas which are dizzying, almost too much for us to bear. You want us to be partners, not just observers, but children. Father, I hope you will help us not just to see these things, but to revel in them, to delight in them. May you help us not just to understand, but to rejoice and to follow in these things. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. <laughs>